Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. What y'all wanna do? Wanna be ballers, shot callers, brawlers. We'll be dipping in the bins with the spoilers. On the low from the J in the toilet. Wanna bumble with the B, huh? Throw a hex on the whole family. Dressed in all black like the omen. Have your friends singing, this is for my homies. And you know me for making niggas so sick. Lost in my sickness on the wrist. Testicles one, two, testicles one, two. What's going on, all you beautiful bastards and all you beautiful people that have a father in your life? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, that mildly flatulent, Corey Caesar. I believe this is episode 35 and also our fourth installment in the Serial Killer Edition series. Um, and these are always a crowd favorite. These are always a fan favorite. The fans love these. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this one as well. And we're going to jump right into today's story. So... Let's picture this. Let's let's close our eyes. Let, let's get into the story and let's imagine a stench. And the stench is hovering over a Sacramento neighborhood like a putrid fog, sickly, sweet, and pungent. Everyone knew where it came from, too. This was not a mystery. And it was coming from the yard of a pale blue Victorian-style home at 1426 F Street, where homegirl Dorothea Puente rented out rooms to elderly and infirm boarders. Now, during the summer, this smell, this stench, it got so bad that some neighbors actually preferred to turn off their air conditioners and suffer the blazing Delta heat rather than have uh, the fans suck in that stench into their homes. Could you imagine? You got that ass sweat, you got that ball drip, and you're like, I'm not even turning on my air conditioner because I don't want that smell in my home. Um, the sewers backed up. The 59-year-old boarding house mistress told people when they complained. Other times she blamed rats rotting under her floorboards or even the fish emulsion she used to fertilize her garden. She tried to blot out the foul smell by dumping bags of lime and gallons of bleach into her yard. She would also spray her parlor with lemon-scented air freshener when guests dropped in like, Psh, like that'll do it, Don't, never, you know, uh, nothing to smell here, guys. Um, it, it, it didn't really matter what she did though. The, the bleach, the lime, the air freshener, the stench, it refused to fade. It clung to that boarding house like a curse. Now, when her borders actually started disappearing, a concerned social worker tipped off police who ended up making a pretty gruesome discovery, which was seven bodies buried in her garden. Now, not long afterward, Puente appeared in court, accused of murdering her tenants so she could steal their government benefit checks and buy herself luxury, um, ranging from fancy clothes to that all-important facelift. This is a story of keeping up appearances. Dorothea Puente tried hard to project a polished exterior with cosmetic surgery and tailored clothes, she also projected herself as an upstanding member of Sacramento society, a small-time sociolite who gave to charity and rubbed elbows with second-tier politicians. No one suspected that this sweet-faced, old-ass Grandma Puente was systematically drugging and killing her frail boarders and burying their remains in the yard she so lovingly tended. With her careful exterior, 
She got away with murder for years. Now, this two-story pale blue house, it stood on a quiet tree-lined street of similar gingerbread Victorians. Although the neighborhood was once uh, the ritzy section of the state capitol, that uh, former governor's mansion is actually just a couple blocks away from there, it kind of had fallen into despair at this point, and many of these once stately homes were now boarded up and used as flop houses, basically. On the morning of November 11th, 1988, Detective John Cabrera and a couple of colleagues visited 1426 F Street looking for um, this guy named Alvaro Bert Montoya, who was a mentally retarded tenant whose social worker had reported him missing, according to the Sacramento Bee. Um, as they approached the high black iron fence surrounding the house, they just noted it was strung with Christmas tree lights and that lace curtains hung in the windows. So the men walk up, they knock on the door, and they ask Puente, hey, you know, can uh, can we come in and have a look around? She's like, sure, come on in, I'll oblige. Now, the interior of this home was cluttered, and it was cluttered with just, you know, old lady knickknacks, miniature vases and porcelain dolls and doilies, writes William Wood in his book, The Bunk uh, Garden, but they didn't immediately notice anything out of the ordinary. They did, however, find something out of the ordinary in her backyard. At the southeast corner of this property, the ground had been recently disturbed, been dug, but dug up. So these men, they returned to their cars to retrieve um, some shovels and spades that they had actually brought along on a hunch. And so, what did they do? I mean, you grab shovels, you're going to do something. You're going to start digging. So that's what they did. They started digging. And quickly, this dig turned up what looked like shreds of cloth and beef jerky. Now, unless you're the uh, Sasquatch or the Macho Man Randy Savage uh, snapping into a Slim Jim, I don't know why you'd be bearing any kind of beef jerky. Um, when their efforts were hampered, though, by what appeared to be a tree root, Cabrera whacked and jabbed it with his shovel. And of course, it didn't budge. It didn't move. So what does he do? He decided to climb down into this hole and get them hands dirty. He's like, fuck it, man. I'm getting here. I'll, you know, I'm a man, bro. I'll grab it with my hands. Cabrera said, quote, I, wet, I wrapped my hand around it, braced my feet, and started pulling. I pulled so hard that it broke loose. And when I pulled it up, I could see the joint. And it was a bone. At that time, I was airborne and out of the hole. Now, hearing all this commotion, Puente walked into the corner of the yard. She's like, hey, what's going on here? And she peered down into the hole herself. When Cabrera told her, you know, hey, uh, you know, we, we, we found something here and it appears to be a human corpse. She acted shocked and slapped her palms to the sides of her face. You ain't home alone, bitch. The men stopped digging, though, when they found a shoe with a piece of foot still wedged in it and decided to return the next day with proper equipment, proper excavation uh, equipment. So the next morning, which was a Saturday, a team of forensic anthropologists, officials from the coroner's office, and a county work crew equipped with heavy machinery descended on her property. Now, the first person they dug from the yard 
was the body the officers had stumbled across the day before, right? And, and that was a small female with gray hair that um, had rotted it into a skeleton at this point. A crowd of onlookers and reporters watched these uh, proceedings from the side of the, uh, the high fence, the Los Angeles Times reported at the time. They claimed that boys shimmied up trees for a better view, and this mood was party-like. They were basically having a little block party out there, you know, summer, summer party, man. And that was up until a fresh body was, or a more fresh body, I should say, was un, uh, unearthed and unburied and was carried out into the open to the coroner's wagon. And then the crowd grew a little slightly more solemn. They're like, yeah, there's actually dead people here. You probably shouldn't be duck celebrating so much. Um, as this team now started drilling through a slab of concrete and prepared to excavate beneath it, Puente walked in the yard and she approached Cabrera. And homegirl was wearing cherry red overcoat, purple pumps, carrying a pink umbrella. <laughs> so, you know, she walks up and she asks the detective and she's like, hey, am I, am I under arrest? He's like, no, no, you're not under arrest. So she asked, well, can I... uh?" Can I go to the Clarion Hotel then? You know, it's just a few blocks away. I want to I want to get a cup of coffee. And he's like, sure. You know what? I'll even escort you past these reporters and curious onlookers before I come back and uh, you know, keep digging. So let's just let's just stop for a second and I just want to make sure you heard that right. All right. They are digging up bodies in this lady's backyard, and the lead detective is escorting her past reporters so the hoe can uh, go to a hotel and get that 1980s version of Starbucks. Yeah, I mean, seriously, what kind of Mickey Mouse operation was this? And, I, and I'm pretty sure they had coffee at the station. And I'm pretty sure that coffee was hot. Could have easily just took her to a, to an interrogation room, like, "Hey, let's talk about these bodies we're finding. We found at least one at this point." And uh, I'll cook you some coffee. I'll make you some coffee. So what happens now? Well, you know, you kind of kind of probably guess. In rapid succession, uh, the team found three more bodies under that slab of cement. And another under a gazebo in the side yard. But by the time authorities noticed that, you know, this white-haired landlady hadn't returned from this hotel coffee excursion, four hours had passed. And Dorothea Puente had already dipped and was actually hundreds of miles away at this point. Now, ultimately, this grisly harvest of Puente's garden would be seven people who had checked into her boarding house and never checked out alive. We had um, Alvaro Bert Montoya, 51, who was a mentally retarded schizophrenic who argued um, in Spanish with the voices inside of his head and called Puente Mama. And he was found under a newly planted apricot tree in the side yard. There was Dorothy Miller. She was 64, an American Indian with a drinking problem who liked to recite poems about heartbreak. She was found with her arms taped to her chest with duct tape. The last time her social worker saw her, she was sitting on the front porch enjoying a cigarette. We had Benjamin Fink, who was a 55-year-old alcoholic, and he was found dressed in striped boxer shorts. Now, shortly before his disappearance in April of 1988, Puente told another boarder, that she was going to take Ben upstairs, you know, to make him feel better. 
Oh. Please, give me some rice. Rice. I'll do anything. I'll make you feel good. Oh, okay, okay. We had um, we had uh, Betty Palmer, 78, whose remains missing the head, hands, and lower legs were found in a sleeveless white nightgown below a statue of St. Francis de Assisi. Um, and when this, this was a few f- uh, feet from the sidewalk at the front of her house. We had Leona Carpenter. And let's, let's think about this irony. You know, I love irony in names. Carpenter. Just remember Carpenter as I tell this. Um, and she was, she was also 78. She was uh, discharged from a hospital to Puente's care in February of 1987 and had spent several weeks agonizing on the sofa before disappearing. Now, she was buried near that back fence, and she was actually, um, it, it was her leg bone that Detective Cabrera mistook for that tree root. So Carpenter tree, get it? Oh, would you look at that? That is a gorgeous tree, though, yeah. if you think about it, you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want to just yeah. look at it. No, you don't want to look at it. That is a gorgeous tree. You had uh, James Gallup a 62-year-old who survived a heart attack and brain tumor surgery but couldn't survive Dorothea Puente. And finally, Vera Faye Martin, who was 64, um, and, and her wristwatch was actually still ticking when she was unearthed. Now, all these bodies, they were all severely decayed at this point, and in several cases, the internal organs had melded together into kind of like a, a, a leathery mass um, handling the rancid bodies and other items from the crime scene proved too much for police Kirk Joy Underwood, who was sent to the morgue one night to help uh, uh, a technician label the evidence that they were finding. Now, she told the Associated Press that after um, that afterward, she vomited every time she saw a news report about the case and began to shower compulsively, feeling like she could never get herself clean. Um, she says, I still have the taste of death in my mouth. Was what she told reporters. I can't eat vegetables grown in the ground because they have dirt around them, like the people dug up in Puente's yard. And I'm a vegetarian. In his book, Wood writes that Puente indulged her champagne taste with her dead tenant's income. In fact, when she was arrested, uh, her face was still unnaturally tight from that facelift. And in her room, detectives found $110 bottles of Giorgio uh, perfume and silk chiffon dresses. Now, you know, chiffon is, is of French origin, I think. So, so you know, it's kind of kinky. Um, de- details of the case, they, these, they kind of emerged slowly. Um, Puente had been renting out the first story of the Victorian to old and alcoholic boarders and using the second story as her living quarters. Um, a search of the boarding house had turned up a note on which Puente had scribbled the first initial of each victim and the amount she was getting from forging their disability and social security checks. Before her arrest, dude, she was making five G's a month off her dead tenants, the paper reported. Five grand a month, $60,000 a year for you math inclined, just from uh, cashing government checks. Um, it's a nice little scam Honker was running if you, you know, if you ask me. By all accounts, um, Puente ran a tight ship. So boarders paid um, $350 a month for a private room and two hot meals a day. And that and that and, and it was it was tight. Breakfast was at 6 30 a.m. and dinner was at 3 30 p.m. 
Now, Puente was also an accomplished cook. Her breakfasts of pancakes, bacon, and eggs were literally to die for. But if residents missed either meal, they just went hungry. She wasn't having none of that bullshit. They weren't allowed to enter the kitchen at odd hours. Nothing for you. They also uh, weren't allowed to touch the phone or the mail. And Puente chewed residents out on more than one occasion for daring to touch the mail. Carla uh, Norton writes that in her book, Disturbed Ground. And while uh, Puente kept up a well-stocked bar for herself upstairs, drinking by the residents was strictly forbidden. She's like, nah, man, no liquor for you. Um, in the evening, she made like these little excursions to these seedy liquor joints like Harry's Lounge, where she'd you know, uh, siddle up to solitary old men, ply them with drinks and ask them about their finances. Cause that's what, that's what most women do when they're talking to the dudes they just met in the bar. Like, Hey, how much money you make? Uh, what's your uh, disability check? Like, what's your social security check? Like you retired. Um, if she, if, if she thought enough of their income, she'd invite them to move into her boarding house. <laughs> like that was her play guys. And it was working. Um, John John Terry, a Harry's regular, told the State Journal Register, quote, she asked me where I got my money from, where I was working. Basically, every time I would, uh, she would see me, she'd hit me up about it, wanting me to move in. Now, Terry refused the honey dick, and because of this refusal, you know, probably lived to tell this tale. In interviews, people gave conflicting descriptions of Puente's personality. John Sharp, who was a retired cook who lived in the boarding house for 11 months, um, basically up until the day police shut that bitch down, told reporters that Puente had a gentle side. She fed stray cats, gave her boarders clothes and cigarettes, and even bought one disabled tenant an adult tricycle so he could be more mobile. Um, the media feeding frenzy was enormous on this case with every news organization looking for a unique angle. Cause that's what they want. They want, you know, do I got something different than this, than this news guy? So when neighbors started telling reporters that, um, Puente liked to basically pass out tamales at Christmas time, who the national Enquirer boy, they wanted to know if that meat and the tamales tasted funny, man. Hashtag cannibalism. And also shameless plug real quick. After you, uh, after this, go listen to episode 29, 29, I believe, about Albert Fish. You know, if you're into that eating bodies life, because we, we did a, a good serial killer edition on that dude, Albert Fish, the Hannibal. Um, now, the LA Times, they tracked down this woman, Patty Casey, who was a 54-year-old cab driver who actually ferried Puente around. Um, and she ferried her around town and, and eventually actually became a friend who visited Puente at this boarding house. Now, Casey told the paper that she basically just drove um, pointing on errands several times a week to buy cement, plants, or fertilizer, or even just dropped her off at various dive bars in downtown Sacramento. Now, Puente confessed secrets to this cab cabbie, saying that she was uh, really 71 and not 59, as the records had indicated, and telling her about her four failed marriages and her recent facelift. Casey told the paper, I thought she was a nice person. 
I really looked up to her and admired her. I felt I could learn a few things from her. I thought she was a, I thought she was very savvy. Yeah, she was. She was savvy. She was savvy at preying on old men, murdering them, burying them under some fruit trees and cement, and then scamming the incompetent U.S. government for Social Security checks. But hey, she looked good doing it, right? Had some lifted face skin, am I right? Um, when, when Casey commented on the unpleasant odor um, permeating from the house, Puente told her it came from the dead rats that were rotten under the floorboards. So this lady also smelled it and rats. Man, that's all you got to say back then, just rats. Um, the police were also interviewing former boarders that had you know made it out alive. And certain patterns became evident. Several times before a tenant disappeared, for example, Puente would tell someone that so-and-so wasn't feeling well and that she was taking them upstairs to make them feel better. That was her, her, going, her going line. Um, and she always had excuses for these disappearances. One tenant was becoming too burdensome for her and telling her how to run her home. So she packed his shit into a cardboard boxes in the middle of the night and threw them uh, right into the street. Get the fuck out. Another left suddenly to live with relatives. Now, under, not, and actually, but see, no one ever actually saw these people leave. That's just what she was telling people. Um, um, under the guise of this, you know, benevolent grandmother lurked a lifelong criminal. And diligent reporters started carefully piecing Puente's life story together, and, and they subsequently published that. So she was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1928. I'm sorry, 1929 in Redlands, California. And although she claimed to be the youngest of 18 children, her birth certificate showed she was her mother's sixth uh, child. Now, her childhood was marred by tragedy. Um, with her father dying of tuberculosis when he uh, when she was eight, and her mother dying in a motorcycle accident accident a year later, her relatives told reporters that the great children were then farmed out to different homes. And according to census records, she lived in the city of Napa at age thirteen. School records show she was a student um, in Los Angeles at sixteen. But less than a year later, she moved to Olympia, Washington, where she called herself Sherry and worked in a milkshake parlor during the summer of 1945. Yeah, and that milkshake brought at least one gentleman caller to that yard. And that man was Fred McFall. Or Fall, McFall, I don't really know how to say M M C and then capital F-A-U-L. We're going to say McFall. Um, a 22-year-old soldier um, back from the war in the Philippines. Now, during that fall, she and a friend were actually living in a motel room and turning tricks there as prostitutes. She was getting that money for Poisse. Um, McFall told reporters, quote, she was a good-looking female. She knew how to make a buck when she wanted to. When... The couple were married in Reno a few months later. The 16-year-old Puente said she was 30 and called herself Sherielle A. Rishili, according to information duly recorded on that marriage certificate. Now, McFall soon found out that Puente was an um, inveterate liar, right? 
Not only did she love to adorn her body with expensive clothes, silk stockings, and flirty dresses, she also loved to embellish her actual background. When she was young, she lied lied to make herself seem more interesting. Well, I'm sure we all do that, right? And uh, it was a habit that stuck with her for life. Sources close to her said she claimed to have lived through the uh, Batatan uh, death march in World War II when she was only 13. Yeah, sure you did. As well as, as, well as the bombing in Hiroshima. Yeah, she was there, guys. Um, she was the sister of the ambassador to Sweden, <laughs> she told people, um, and a close friend of Rita Hayworth. Now, I know most of you probably don't know, Rita Hayworth was actually a, a big-time movie star back in the day, nicknamed the Love Goddess. Now, McFarlane Puente set up um, house in Garden, uh, where is that? Uh, Gardnerville, Nevada, and had two daughters. Shortly after that birth of their second daughter, Puente went to Los Angeles. And she became pregnant several months later because she's a hoe. She miscarried that baby, but McFowl left her anyway. And the couple's daughters were raised by other people. One by McFowl's mother and the other adopted by strangers. So both these humans sound, you know, just real wonderful and great. The easy money she got from hooking selling that pussy was a hard habit for Puente uh, to shake. And in 1948, she stole checks from an acquaintance to buy a hat, purse, shoes, and some pantyhose. She was arrested, and she was convicted of forgery. She ended up serving four years in jail and then skipped town while she was on probation. In 1952, she married her second husband, Axel Johansson, now, Johansson was a merchant seaman, and when he returned from long absences, he'd sometimes find other men living with his wife because she's a hoe. Now, neighbors complained constantly of taxis dropping off strange men at all hours of the night. The couple fought, separated, made up, separated, and still remained married for 14 more years. So they basically followed the course of a typical Facebook relationship. Um, in 1960, she was convicted of residing in a Sacramento brothel. She told authorities she was just visiting a friend and didn't know it was a whorehouse. Sure. Um, in 1968, she opened a halfway house for alcoholics called the Samaritans and married 21-year-old Robert Jose Puente. Um, at this point, I think she was claiming to be 39. So he was 21. She was claiming to be 39. I think she was probably a little bit older at this point. Um, so she she was, you know, cougaring it up just a little bit. And just like that previous marriage, the couple argued constantly. But this marriage only lasted about a year. Um, as did the halfway house when she ran up a $10,000 debt on the bills. Soon afterward, she moved in and began managing the border house located, um, the, I'm sorry, the boarding house located at 21st and F Street in Sacramento. And in 1976, she married one of those tenants, Pedro Angel Montalavo, excuse me, who was 52 at the time. Now, uh, Montalvo was quoted as saying, 
She wanted new pantyhose every day. She thought she was rich. Homegirl had a fascination with pantyhose. This chick loved pantyhose. Maybe she had some varicose veins. She wanted to cover those up. I don't really know. But her thing was pantyhose. In, uh, in 1978, she was convicted again. She was convicted this time of forging 34 checks she had stolen from her tenants. She served five more years on probation and was ordered to undergo counseling. Um, a psychiatrist who interviewed her diagnosed her as a schizophrenic and a very disturbed woman. Authorities allege that Puente committed her first murder in the spring of 1982 when 61-year-old Ruth uh, Monroe died of a drug overdose, overdose shortly after she moved into 1426 F Street with Puente. Um, and, and this lady just showed up bringing all her earthly belongings and $6,000 in cash money. Um, now, Monroe was also Puente's business partner in a small lunchroom business. Uh, Monroe had written her husband, who was actually terminally ill and residing at a veterans administration hospital, that's why he wasn't with her, um, that she was actually excited about this partnership and optimistic about the future. But just a scant two weeks later, um, and after she moved in, she ran into a friend at a beauty parlor and blurted out, I feel like I'm going to die. When the friend asked her why, according to reports, Monroe told the woman, I don't know. Just feel like something's up. I feel like I'm going to die. And three days later, Monroe was dead of a massive overdose of Tylenol and codeine. The coroner wrote it off as a suicide, not having enough evidence to classify it as a homicide. A month later, however, Puente was arrested and charged with drugging four elderly people and stealing their valuables. One of these victims, a 74-year-old man, told the Sacramento Bee that Puente doped him, then looted his home as he washed in a stupor, unable to speak or move. Ho was the OG Cardi B, right? Um, now, this judge sentenced Puente to five more years, but this time in the California Institution for Women at Frontera. She was released after three years in 1985 and ordered to stay away from the elderly and not handle government checks of any kind issued to others. Hilariously enough, though, she had already violated this parole condition while still in prison. That's how egregious she is. When she started corresponding with a 77-year-old pen pal from Oregon named Everson Gilmouth, who made the mistake of telling Puente he earned a cozy pension and owned a pimp-ass Airstream trailer. And those Airstreams are pimp. I want one. Um, when, when Puente was given her walking ticket, guess what? Gilmouth was there to pick her up. And he drove her right to 1426 F Street, the place Puente resided before she was sent to prison. Now, uh, Gilmouth had told his sister he was going to marry this hoe and that he made her a, 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 a signatory on his checking account, basically that he she could write her name and sign his checks. Not long afterward, what do you think happened? His body was dumped unceremoniously along the Sacramento River in a homemade coffin wrapped in plastic and surrounded by mothballs. Three months after she killed dude, Puente sent a thinking of you card to his sister in an attempt to cover her tracks. 
Now, the pensioner's body, it just rotted in silence by the Sacramento River until January of 1986 when a fisherman found his uh, plywood coffin. His remains will remain unidentified for three more years in the city morgue while his fiance continued her little killing spree she was on. Um, so at this point, this home, remember, she was just managing it. She didn't actually own it at this point. But the owner did move out. She moved out um, uh, shortly after this in 1986, and, and Puente took it over, subletting the first floor rooms for cheap and taking over the second story for herself. Soon afterwards, social workers came calm, seeking to place their homeless clients with her. Now, Puente never actually told these social workers about her five felony convictions for drugging and robbing the elderly. And these same social workers never did their homework to see who the fuck this hoe really was. A former social worker told the Sacramento Bee that she put 19 seniors in Puente's care between 1987 and 1988 because, quote, Dorothea was the best the system had to offer. It's fucked up, right? Peggy Nickel, uh, Nickerson said Puente accepted the hardest clients to place, the drug and alcohol addicts, the people who were physically or verbally abusive. But Nickerson stopped sending her way uh, clients her way when she actually overheard Puente cussing out one of them. She later would learn that four of her clients ended up buried in Puente's yard, man. The system that let these uh, fragile members of societies fall through the cracks was predictably um, fustigated in the wake of Puente's arrest. An independent county agency, they published a report titled Sins of Omission, which criticized the Sacramento Police Department's handling of the case, as well as another 10 public and private agencies that had dealings with uh, the boarding home, and as they should. That's what media is for. Call out this bullshit. Um, it, it seemed inconceivable that, and, and this is crazy, guys, that federal parole agents, federal parole agents who visited Puente 15 times during the two years leading up to her arrest, they never realized she was running a boarding home for the elderly, which was in direct violation of her parole. So here's her parole agents who were supposed to be checking to see if she's violating parole. You know, for two years, had no idea she was running a boarding home. How? Now, on the second day of digging, which was the day um, when the police let Puente walk, right, to the nearby Clar Clarion Hotel, you know, for that quick cup of coffee, um, is when she fled the scene. Now, what she did was she called a cab from that hotel, which took her actually to a bar on the other side of town. She's like, let me get my mind right. So there, she chugged down four vodkas and grapefruit before catching another taxi to Stockton. Um where she boarded a bus to Los Angeles. Now, during the six-hour bus ride, um, she had a numbing buzz. She had $3,000 cash in her purse and a burning desire to reinvent herself. Now, there are some debates. There are some debates on whether that burning sensation was desire or just a case of the herps. You know, I'm, I'm going to say maybe it's quite possibly the herps. Uh, a few days later, Charles... Um, Wilgus, Wilgus, a 59-year-old retired carpenter, was nursing a mid-afternoon beer 
at the Monte Carlo Tavern in downtown Los Angeles when, you know, this elegant stranger in a bright red overcoat took a stool next to him, started batting those eyes. Now, she ordered a vodka and orange juice this time and uh, introduced herself to Wilkes as Donna Johansson, a Sacramento woman whose husband had died the month before and who was looking to begin a new life here in L.A. The grieving widow told Wilkes that, you know, she had gotten off to a poor start. That this cabbie who dropped her off at this $25 a night uh, Royal Viking Motel, he just dipped out with her suitcase. And to make matters worse, the heels of her only uh, remaining pair of shoes were broken. And apparently... (laughs) <laughs> apparently she leaned back in her bar stool to flash a bit of ankle and that purple pump at him. And if you didn't know, an ankle flash back then uh, will get that dick kind of hard. Hashtag porn ruined us. Now, Wilkes felt sorry for this woman and took her shoes actually to the cobbler across the street to have them prepared while she was still drinking. When he returned, this woman wasted no time, zero time, of asking him how much money he got from Social Security Month. Like I said, because that's just the, that's where the normal conversation always goes, right? You know, 30 minutes after meeting somebody, how, how, what's your social security check look like, guy? Now, for some reason, he didn't think her question was particularly nosy. So he told her, 576 a month, a baller, bro. Uh, now, he did think it strange, however, when the stranger told him she was a good cook and suggested they move in together. Let's move in together. I just met you. Um, and she said, she's like, well, we're, we're just two lonely souls in the world. She said, you know, um, so why not keep each other company? Now he claims he told her, I got all I can handle right now, but that still didn't stop him from taking her out for a chicken dinner at one of them upscale, uh, fast food joints. But Wilkes kept wondering why this stranger seemed so familiar to him. He's like, man, I just, I can't put my finger on it, but she looks familiar. Now, in the early evening, they parted ways after making plans to go shopping the next day to replace the items the cabbie had stolen. I'm going to buy her shit. I mean, kudos to him. Sounds like a great guy. Because he could have, I mean, obviously he could have, sounds like he could have went in and and threw that dick in there. And instead he was like, nah, you know, we'll we'll part ways. I took you out to to McDonald's for that chicken. And uh, I'll pick you back up in the morning and, and we'll get you some clothes, right? So, um, back at his apartment, Wilkes figured out who this lady actually was, and he had seen her on television, along with the bodies they pulled from her yard, and and a, and a, and a, he claims a chill ran through him. So, what do you do when you get a when you get a chill ran through you? And you find out that you've just been hanging out with a with a serial killer, you know who's on the loose. What do you do? You do what any rational human being does in that situation. You call the local TV station. <laughs> which in turn called the correct people who happened to be the police, you know? And and he 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 says, I'm just very thankful that that uh that the relationship didn't go any further. Wilkes he he told that to the Times. At 10:40 p.m. that same night, Los Angeles police surrounded the Fleabag Motel where Puente was staying and arrested her without incident. During the flight back to Sacramento, she told uh, a reporter, "I have not killed anyone." The checks I cashed, yes. I used to be a very good person at one time. 
uh, Dorothea Puente wore a blue dress and a pearl necklace when she pleaded innocent to the nine counts of murder filed against her at the Sacramento uh, Municipal Court on March 31st, 1989. Another four years would pass before all the evidence was sifted through and her trial began in February of 1993. Because of the extensive uh, pretrial publicity, the venue was moved from Sacramento to Monterey, and it took three months to impanel the jury of eight men and four women. Prosecutor John O'Mara was blunt in his summation of the case. It was a simple matter of um, predatory greed, he said. Um, Puente murdered her lodgers to steal their government checks. Uh, O'Mara, O'Mara told the court she wanted people who had no relatives, no friends, no family, people who, when they're gone, won't have others coming around and asking questions. Her defense team, Peter Vlotten and Kevin Climo, contended that the tenants died of natural causes. Puente didn't call paramedics to retrieve the bodies, they maintained, because she was operating that boarding house in violation of her parole, and she just didn't want to, you know, get sent back to prison. Great defense. Uh, not really. In his opening statement, Climo described Puente as just, you know, this benevolent soul who selflessly cared for the dregs of society. People had no place else to go. He argued that the money from the tenants barely covered Puente's operating expenses. She stole money to cover her expenses, he suggested, but she was not a killer. The five-month-long trial included 153 witnesses, 3,100 pieces of evidence, and a scale model of the Victorian boarding house, which rested on a table uh, at the front of the courtroom, like a misplaced outhouse. In the courtroom, Puente cultivated her sweet little granny look to the nines, guys. She was dressed in flowered frocks and lacquering her hair into a silky white grandma poof. She managed to keep her poker face during the most damning testimony, but dashed off frequent notes to her attorneys. When the uh, prosecution showed photos of Puente's alleged victims, first alive and smiling and then rotting in the garden next, and she just gazed at the images through her thick glasses without flinching. Dorothea Puente murdered nine people, Amara told jurors after the grim photo exhibition. Don't turn your back on reason. And he's basically just making it like, I know what she looks like, but let's look at the evidence here. Um, the prosecution's main weakness, though, was the fact that there were no eyewitnesses to these alleged murders. The prosecution could only prove the cause of death in the case of Ruth Monroe. The other bodies, they were too decayed. But one thing a uh, toxicology test did reveal was that there were traces of Dalamane, a prescription-strength sleeping pill, in all the remains. So there was a common denominator there. Um, Dalamane can be lethal, especially when taken with alcohol or other sedatives, and it's particularly potent in elderly people, experts testified. At a Puente's preliminary hearing, a doctor testified that she had used um, Dorothy Miller's veteran's ID card to try to get a prescription for this Dalamane, which the doctor refused to give her. This evidence was also backed up by testimony um, about boarders who complained that Puente's foisted medication on them, 
Um, she had an abundant sources for the drug in addition to um, the Dalamane she acquired from her court-ordered um, an appointed psychiatrist that we talked about. She also got it from two other doctors. Former resident Carol During, I'm sorry, Durning, who lived at the rooming house for the first half of 1987 before she was evicted, testified that she overheard Puente telling James Gallup um, he had to leave unless he let her take charge of his money. He later complained that Puente was giving him drugs that made him f- uh, uh, that made him sleep all the time. Uh, that Alvaro Bert Montoya dude, he also complained to an employee of a local detox center where he resided before transferring to her home that she was giving him a, a medicine that he did not like to take. When that employee, a Mr. William Johnson, confronted Puente about the matter, she flew into a rage and asked him, she's like, fuck it, take him back then. She's like, take him back. Take him back to the detox center to live with you if you're going to meddle in my business. And, of course, you know, because everyone wants to virtue signal, but everyone, no one actually wants to do anything about anything. He, he's like, oh, you're right. So he advised Montoya that he, you know, he'd be better off at the boarding house than, you know, at his center. Um, I told him, you'll be safe here. Johnson told the court, and I was wrong. And I got to live with this for the rest of my life. So I do feel bad for him on that aspect of it. But, bro, I mean, he he, he was giving you the warnings. He told you. Um, and, and he's old. He was looking for you for help. Um, Puente went to elaborate lengths to cover up Montoya's death. She actually paid some dude, Donald Anthony, a local halfway house resident, to help her flush out her story. Anthony called uh, Montoya's social worker, posing as his brother-in-law, and told her that Montoya had gone to live with his family out of state. But he fucked up. And in a message left on the social worker's answering machine, homie mistakenly used his own name instead of the brother-in-law's. And this was the blunder which actually prompted Detective Cabrera to visit the boarding home and the subsequent uh, excavation of that yard. Um, a, handwrite, a handwriting expert confirmed that Puente had signed the names of seven dead tenants on 60 federal and state checks that were all sent to the home in 1987 and 1988, and she was making $5,000 a month from these, forgies, uh, th- th- these forgeries. So 60 k a year, like we talked about before. Remember her defense? It's just to pay her expenses. So in 1989, you're telling me $60,000 was paying just for your expenses. You were also getting $350 per month from every person living in your home. Really? Because, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm living in 2019, and I don't have $60,000 worth of expenses a year. I don't, I don't. So, I mean, what are we doing here? What kind of expenses? Facelifts. That's what. That's not expenses. Sorry. That's a horrible fucking defense. Um, but ironically... Even with all these forgeries, which is crazy to me, this is like the weirdest part of the one of the weirdest part of the cases case to me is the prosecution decided not to charge Puente with forgery. You heard that right. And their excuse, they said that they thought the additional charge would make the case too complex for jurors. I mean, is everyone fucking just retarded in this area? What's so complicated about the motive that she wanted the money? To live this lifestyle. That's the motive. That's the reasoning for the murders. Like, what do you mean you're not going to charge with that? That's just so weird to me. Um, anyway, her, def- her defense attorney, um, that Kevin Climo, he conceded that, you know, you know, Puente had a touch of larceny in her heart. 
but insisted that it doesn't make her a killer. It doesn't make her an evil serial killer. Excuse me. Um, the prosecution brought forth witnesses to refute this argument, including that handyman Puente hired to build Everson Gilmoss uh, coffin, that coffin that was on the river. He told the court that he'd help her dump the body by the Sacramento River. Now, authorities were not able to file charges against him because the statute of limitations on that crime had expired, but his testimony gave jurors a glimpse into Puente's frigid heart. Um, some former residents also came forward. Homer Myers, who lived um, at her place for two years after she found him in a bar, said he unwittingly uh, dug some of the tenant's graves. Um, she told him to dig a four-foot hole um, for a small apricot tree. Remember the apricot tree we talked about where that body was found? And he wondered why she wanted it uh, so deep. Roots, guys, those roots. Um, things got rough when he refused to sign his documents, though, empowering the mistress of the house to cash his Social Security checks. He's like, I just never signed that. He told the paper. I just passed it off. Now, his refusal, it may have saved his life. No one really knows. But six years after the bodies were discovered in this yard, six jurors actually traveled to Sacramento to visit the crime scene they'd only known from pictures or verbal descriptions during the trial. They sat in the dive bars where she trolled for victims. They toured the narrow rooms of the Victorian home where several boarders were given sleeping pill uh, cocktails before they slowly slipped from unconsciousness to death and walked over the garden where Puente had planted flowers over their corpses. Dusk was spreading gloomily over the backyard when juror Joe Martin rushed back into the home, visibly shaking. You can't see much back there, he told the paper, but you feel a lot. It's weird. After a year of weighing the testimony, the, juror found, the jury found Puente guilty of murdering Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, and Le, uh, Leona Carpenter. But the jury couldn't reach a verdict on the six other murder charges, and Superior Court Judge Michael Verga declared a mistrial on those counts, according to Los Angeles Times. Now, there's really no explanation why the jury found Puente guilty on the three counts, but could not reach an agreement on those other charges, which were like eerily exactly similar to the other cases. Um, but, but they just, they didn't, but who cares? They got around three, right? Um, and, and Puente showed zero emotion when the verdict was read. And on December 10th, 1993, Virga sentenced Puente to prison for life without, without the possibility of parole. Puente was 64 when she was sent to a central California woman's facility near uh, Chowchilla, the largest woman's prison in the country. And for the remainder of her life, she maintained her innocence, insisting that all her tenants had died of natural causes. Now, she did end up giving the world a look at her famous uh, cooking mom prison. This dude, Shane B uh, Bugby, who ran a publication and a tabloid, Chicago at Night, began corresponding with her about her cooking. She sent him a tamale recipe, um, and that started kind of a, a, a correspondence and an exchange, and he would send her about $10 a month plus items like makeup, perfume, John Grisham books, and a subscription to Good Housekeeping. Um, she liked, She's like a kid, he said. Um, she'll see things in, in magazines and book ads and circle what she wants. In return, Puente sent Bugby 
dozens of recipes and poems, as well as the drawings of shovels, bunnies, and frying pans. And he published a book, Cooking with a Serial Killer, Recipes from Dorothea Puente. Now, this book included um, the recipes that she sent, those drawings, poems, and actually some transcriptions of the telephone calls that they shared together. Um, uh, Dorothea Puente died in prison on March 27th, 2011 at the age of 82 from the same thing she claimed all those other dudes died in her hands, and that was of natural causes. And uh, that, my friends, is going to conclude this episode. That's all we got. She's done. She's dead. There's nothing more to say. Um, but be sure to go back and listen to all the previous episodes if you have not already. Make sure to follow the social media accounts, mainly at Chromatic Distortion Podcast on Instagram to stay up to date with the show. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast listening platforms. And uh, we will most likely be back next week with another current events episode. I already got that one going. In the meantime, the world is full of good people. If you can't find one, be one. Catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion. Uh huh, yeah. Uh huh, yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Uh uh huh, yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Uh. Now, what y'all wanna do? Wanna be ballers, shot callers, brawlers? Who be dipping in the bins with the spoilers? On the low from the Jake and the Taurus. Trying to get my hands on some grants like Horace. Yeah, living the raw deal. Three course meal, spaghetti, fettuccine, and veal. But still, everything's real in the field. And what you can't have now, leave when you will. But don't knock me for trying to bury seven zeros over in Rio de Janeiro. Ain't nobody's hero, but I want to be heard. On your hot nine seven every day, that's my word. Swimming in women with their own condominiums. Five plus fives who drive millenniums. It's all about the Benjamins. What? I get a 50 pound bag of oof for the mutts. Five carrots on my hands with the cuts. And something I European chromed out about with about the being clutch. A bro, nigga. Drinking more liquor, driving a bro bigger. I'm with most sippers, watched by gold diggers. Rocking bajor denims with gold zippers. Lost your touch, we kept owls. Popping crystals, freaking the three-quarter reptiles. Enormous cream, forest green. Binge Jeep for my team. So while you sleep, I'm a scheme. You see through, so why nobody never gonna believe you. You should do what we do, stack chips like Hebrews. Don't let the melody intrigue you, cause I'll leave you. I'm only here for that green paper with the I'm strictly trying to cop those. Colossal size Picasso's and have poppy flip coke outside those gatos. The end with cash flowing like Sosa and the Latin chick transporting in a chocha. Stampeding over pop modes, never sober. Flexing Range Rovers, dealing weight by Minnesota. Avoiding arcs with camcorders and Chevy Novas. Stash in the building with this chick named Alona from Daytona. When I was young, I want the boner, but now I only hit chicks who win beauty passions. Tricking and taking me skin at the Aspens, uh, gangster mentality. Stay poppin' crystal, pack a black pistol and the act coupe that's dark brown. Pinky ringin', gondolas with the man singin'. Italian music down the river with your chick clingin'. To my bizzles, play you mad fools. Actin' hard when you was pussy as RuPaul's. Come on.
I want to do. Want to be ballers, shot callers, brawlers. We'll be dipping in the bins with the spoilers. On the low from the J in the Taurus. Want to bumble with the B, huh? Throw a hex on the whole family. Dressed in all black like the Omen. Have your friends singing, this is for my homies. And you know me for making niggas so sick. Lost in my six with the Lex on the wrist. If it's murder, you know she wrote it. Uh-huh. German Ruger for your ass, bitch, deep throated. Know you wanna feel the rule, cause it's platinum coated. Take your pick, got a firearm, you should've told it. Suck a dick. All that bullshit you kick, play a hatin' from the sideline. Get your own shit. Why you ride mine? Uh-huh. I'm a good fella, kinda late. Stash the 80s in Mercedes. Puffy, hold me down, baby. Only female in my crew. And I kick shit like a uh, nigga do. Uh, Pull the trigger uh, to uh, fuck come you. I've been had skills, crystal still, hot bills in Brazil. About a mill of ice grill, make it hard to figure me. Liquor be kicking me in my asshole. Undercover, Donnie Brasco. That's my East Coast girl, the Bentley, the twirl. My West Coast shorty, push the chrome 740. Rock the red man and naughty. Oh, with my kitty cat, half a brick of gay in the bra with my titties at. And I'm living that whole life we push weight. Uh-huh. Fuck the state, pen, fuck holes in Penn State. Listen close, it's Francis, the praying mantis. Attack with the map, my left hand spit. Right hand grip on the whip for the smooth getaway. Player haters, get away, or my lead will spray. Squeeze off till I'm empty, don't tempt me. Only to hell I send thee, all about the Benji's. Why? Benjamin's baby. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamin's baby. Uh-huh. Yeah. 